0: take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11 John chapter 11 beginning in verse 45 this morning as so we come back to this great chapter a very pivotal, pivotal chapter that is bringing us right to the point of the Passion Week uh, this is a turning point uh, unlike anything else in this gospel now several times we've seen Changes of direction, changes of, of emphasis as, that have been made there. But in this particular point, especially these last verses of this chapter, we see that the, the whole atmosphere changes. And there's a reason for that. Hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 45 and, and ending in verse 57. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, that is, came to comfort her, and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take, take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, but not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather together into one "...into one, the children of God, who are scattered abroad." So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to a country in the wilderness, to a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves." So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. When you come to this story and this this event of Lazarus that we looked at last week, being raised from the dead and coming forth from the grave, you realize that the raising of Lazarus is one of those no neutrality events. What do I mean by a no neutrality event? Well, I just mean this. Those who saw it had to choose sides. They had to take sides. When they looked at Jesus, walk up to that grave and scream, cry out with a loud voice, Lazarus come forth And he who had died four days earlier came forth, bound hand and foot in grave clothes, and walked out of that tomb or waddled out of that tomb and stood there before them. They had to realize this man really is a prophet of God at least. This man really is someone sent from God. He really is something of who he says he is. And they had to make a decision that, yes, we fall on our face, we believe in him, we trust in him, or they refuse to believe. It's a no-neutrality moment. You know, in reality, each of us face no-neutrality moments. We see the work of God. We see the power of God being expressed. We are sometimes like some of these who believed. John tells us in that passage in verse 45, those who came to comfort Mary saw what he had done and believed in him. And the construction that John uses here in the language, it makes it clear that they had genuine faith. They put their trust in Jesus. They said, you are Lord and you are our Lord. And we submit to you and we come to you. Jesus tells us that these people set out, just to do a good deed. They simply set out to come and, and comfort Mary and, and Martha and, and, and those sisters in the death of their brother. They came to be comforters, but they found themselves face to face with a stupendous work of God, a miraculous work of God. And when they saw that face-to-face, they had to answer one way or the other. He is the Christ, I believe in him, or we refuse to believe in him, even in the face of the evidence. Some did that. As a matter of fact, John says, others didn't believe. Others rather went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. They just refused to believe. There was the reaction of unbelief. The Pharisees were known to be the enemies of Christ. They were the haters of Christ. They were opposed to Jesus, his entire ministry. You find that in all four Gospels. The the Pharisees are always looking around, wanting to nitpick, wanting to find something, wanting to to see something that they can criticize him for, whether it's healing someone on the Sabbath or telling someone to take up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. No matter what it is, they're trying to find something wrong with, with what he's doing. They're always nitpicking, particularly about the law. They were hostile, consistently hostile to the Lord. So the reaction to unbelief, the reaction of unbelief in the face of this miracle is simply to ignore the power of God. Simply to say, I I just refuse to accept it. I refuse volitionally and willfully and, and stubbornly to see what is clearly before my eyes. And that's what those Jews who went off to the Pharisees did. They just would not believe. You and I are just like them. Oh, we may not see Lazarus physically raised from the grave. We may not see Jesus physically and literally uh, you know make some mud out of the, the clay and rub it on someone's eyes and say, Go wash in the pool, and you'll see again, and that one who is blind since birth see again. We may not physically always see someone that's ill rise up or cripple rise up and walk after 30 something years we may not see those kind of visible miracles with these eyes but i want you to know we see the work of god before us always the psalmist says in psalm 1 uh, excuse me psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of god we are first and foremost confronted with god's glory and god's power when we look at creation, when we look at the stars at night, when we look at the sun rising during the day, when we feel the heat of the sun and see the, the vegetation grow and the beauty of this land, this world, we see the glory and the power of Almighty God. And many refuse to believe. Paul said in Romans 1, you know, they instinctively know there is a God, all men do. It's somehow inbred in them that there is a creator. There is something. There is someone that is greater than them at them that has done all of this. And yet they see that and they refuse to believe because they want to be their own God. They want to be their own sovereign. They want to rule their own lives. And so they say, I will not believe. And that's the way these were. That's the way these Pharisees were. Can you imagine religious people seeing the power of god like was seen in the life of jesus and just refusing stubbornly obstinately to believe it's beyond my comprehension i mean the pharisees were the religious of the religious the pharisees were those who you know everybody looked up to as as the religious ones the the pious ones the holy ones if you will and yet they would not believe They were the religious party rather than the political party in Jerusalem, in Israel in that day. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were were a little bit of both. They were religious in one sense, but they were really the political party. The Sanhedrin, the council that he talks about here in verse 47, those are the ones who have political authority because the Romans have granted it to them. A, A little bit of a little bit of authority and a little bit of power. So it says in verse 47 that when they were told about what Jesus had done, the the Pharisees and the chief priests came together, and the chief priests being those who represent the Sanhedrin, that they come together and they convened a council. It's kind of interesting the way John says it here. I don't know when he says they convened a council. I don't know if this is an unofficial gathering or if it probably would have been more... Expressed the council if it were an official gathering of the Sanhedrin, but it's like they gathered those who they knew would be sympathetic to their own cause in coming up against Jesus, and they were saying, they were saying, what are, what are we doing? Now that may seem like a strange statement to you. I guess how you inflect it would be how you understand it. Uh, what are we doing? Matter of fact, what are we doing to stop this man? That might be one way. It's looked at. But the implication, I think, is more of what what are we doing? We're not getting anywhere fast. We're we're trying to bring an end to this rabble rouser. We're trying to bring an end to this one who we believe is in opposition to the law of Moses. And we're not getting anywhere. He keeps doing miracles and the people keep believing. And if we don't do something fast, the whole world is going to believe in him. All the men men everywhere are going to believe in him. We've got to do something about it i find it quite interesting here in, verse, in the end of verse 47 when they said what are we do- what are we doing we're getting nowhere fast he says for this man is performing many signs i find it really interesting that they don't deny it Do you see that they don't say he's he's a false teacher they don't say he's he's tricking the people They don't say he's lying to people about who, they say, listen, we've got to do something because this man is performing many signs and the people are seeing it and if if we don't get him, if we let him keep going on like this, all men will believe in him and when that happens, you know what's going to happen? The Romans are going to come in because it's going to stir up, it's going to ripple the waters a little bit, it's going to stir up the waters and the Romans are going to come in and they're going to say, you're not capable of governing and they're going to clamp down on us. And so what's going to happen is we're going to lose our place, and we're going to lose the nation. Losing the place clearly refers to, the, clearly refers to losing the temple. We'll, we'll not have the temple anymore. They will come in. Now, interestingly, just a few years after this, 30 or 40 years after this, they lost it anyway when it was destroyed by the Romans in, in, in 70 A.D., they said, we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our religion. We're going to lose our place of sacrifice. We're going to lose the temple. And we're also going to lose the nation, talking about Jerusalem and, and Palestine and the area that they occupied. See, the Romans were fine to let the Jews run things, the Sanhedrin run things, the high priest be the, not only the high religious order but also the high governing person as long as things were going okay. But at any sign of trouble, at any sign of of, of things getting a little out of hand, they knew the Romans would come charging in and they would put the steel boot on their necks and and they would intervene and no one would be safe in their party. And they wanted none of it. So they said, we've got to find some way to stop Jesus. We've got to find some way to bring this to an end. And, And so... Caiaphas who the scripture says was the high priest that year now it might lead you to think there that John doesn't understand the whole concept of high priest you know we we know that the high priest is of the the lineage of Aaron and we know that he's a high priest for life but it all changed when the Romans came in now Caiaphas was probably high priest for about 18 years according to to Jewish history And and so it wasn't just, it sounds like he was that year made high priest and next year they would appoint another high priest. It wasn't that at all. I think John is just simply pointing here, Caiaphas was the one to whom it fell to be high priest in the year in which God was about to show his glory and bring salvation to people. It's a very pregnant phrase, if you will. It's a very telling phrase that Caiaphas was the high priest right now at this time when Lazarus comes out. But when the Passion Week is about to begin, Caiaphas is the high priest who's going to be ruling during the time when God is going to show his glory in salvation. It's, it's quite, quite a statement if you, if you think about it just a minute. But, but in verse 49... John makes an interesting statement really 49 through 51 because when he says nor do you take into account that is it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now John as we've seen throughout this gospel likes double meanings. Several times he's he's shown us something that speaks one way in in sort of the clear meaning of what Caiaphas is saying. Caiaphas is saying, listen, we we don't want the Romans on our necks. We don't want to die here. We don't want to lose our authority. We don't want to lose our power. So it's better that we kill this one man and let him die and be put out of the way than the whole nation perish under uh, under Roman authority. But John goes on to say what Caiaphas didn't realize was as high priest, although he wasn't very godly, although he refused to see the signs that Christ did as signs of the authority of God and this being the Messiah, although he refused all those things, John says he prophesied. God spoke through him a truth that he didn't even realize he was saying. Yes, indeed, it is better that one man die that the nation might be saved. And John says not only the nation, but also all the children of God that are outside of Israel. All those who are his that he will bring into the fold. All those who, who, whom are, are his people, a part of his body, that, that have not even heard the gospel yet, that he's going to bring in. It is expedient, yes, that one man die, but not in the way Caiaphas thinks. Caiaphas is thinking strictly as one who is who is uh, political. One who is thinking very earthly. And very worldly. It's interesting that John identifies Caiaphas in verse 49 as one of them. Caiaphas hadn't been around. He's the high priest. He's of the Sanhedrin. He hadn't been around with the Pharisees doing all this stuff. But John says he's one of them. (laughs) One of them identifies him as being with this group of haters of Jesus. And perhaps indicates that this is not an official meeting at all that maybe some of those in the Sanhedrin, and we know there are some, don't we? Nicodemus uh, and some others, who uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who are sympathetic to what Jesus is doing, who are looking at him in a different light, who are seeing that these are signs from God, miraculous signs from God. And, and, and so evidently maybe this has been convened and held kind of in secret to keep some of those away. Only those who were one of them we brought into the meeting, brought into the party. And so Caiaphas has a very cynical solution. He must die so that we won't suffer. He's got to die so that we can stay in control. Isn't it interesting the words that Caiaphas uses that John records? He says, it is expedient see that it's expedient for you that one man die he has no moral or justice connuption about this at all he doesn't say understand it is right (laughs) it is right that we kill this man so that we can live he's not worried about morals he's not worried about justice he's not worried about right and wrong he's worried about what is expedient Caiaphas is the consummate pragmatist. This is going to work. This is going to work. And, and, and we're that way, aren't we? We're pragmatists in our daily lives, even in our, even in our walk with Christ sometimes. We don't ask what's right, what's wrong, what's, what's true, what's false, what's best, and, and, or, and, or what's just good. We don't ask those questions about, is it the right thing that needs to be done? Am I doing the right thing under Christ, by His authority, by His grace? say, well, what what will work best for me? We become pragmatists in our witness sometimes. Because we we say, oh, it might be uncomfortable if I share the gospel with this person or that person at work or in my neighborhood or whatever. It's just better. I can get along better with these people if I just keep my mouth shut about Christ. You'd make a great Caiaphas. I'd make a great Caiaphas. When I become a pragmatist in my sharing of the gospel, more concerned about what is comfortable to me than what is right and what is necessary. Didn't matter to Caiaphas whether Jesus was guilty or not. The solution to the problem posed by his growing popularity among the people was just to have him killed and get it done as quickly as possible. But John says he didn't speak of his own initiative. He prophesied. He, he thought he was talking about just keeping the Romans out of Jerusalem, keeping the Romans out of, out of Palestine. But what he was really doing was he's saying, yes, Jesus is going to die, but it's going to be uh, for salvation of his people. It, it's going to be for salvation. And, and Caiaphas said that without understanding one iota, the impact of his statement. The truth is far deeper than Caiaphas recognizes. And one that neither he nor those to whom he spoke could possibly understand because they were blinded. Because they refused to see. They refused to hear and see what Christ was doing. They refused to understand. They they refused to say there is something to him. He's doing these signs. It could only be coming from God. They didn't want to understand. And so because of that, they make a determination. The last part of that section on 51 and 52, or really 53, it says, From that day on, they planned together to kill him. Up until this point, we've heard situations where it said they wanted to seize him. They wanted to stop him. They wanted to shut him up. They wanted to... You know, they wanted to somehow keep him from speaking to the people by maybe locking him away somewhere. But here the statement's made. From this point on, from that day on, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the whole religious and political establishment of Israel, they planned together to kill him. So what did Jesus do? He withdrew. He went to Ephraim. Ephraim was probably about, 12 to 15 miles from Jerusalem. It was was far enough away that that he was was safe from their plots for for the time being. But it was close enough that he could, it was, it was close enough that he could get back to Jerusalem when he was good and ready for the Passover. He knew that the Passover was coming. The Passover was going to be the time that would set in motion the events of Calvary. The Passover was going to be the time that would set into motion the events of his sacrifice, him being, as as Jeff talked about earlier, uh, the sacrificial lamb, the perfect lamb, what John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he wasn't going to do it on their time. He was going to show that no man, no matter how powerful they thought themselves to be, no matter how important they thought themselves to be religiously, Pharisees and Sadducees, the Canhedrin, Caiaphas, no matter who they were, no man was going to determine the time. It would be in God's time, in God's purpose, in God's plan, and nobody else's. So it says, so he withdrew himself, went to Ephraim, because they were seeking for him. And and when the Jews came into Jerusalem getting ready for the Passover... Just days away now. And, and they were going through all the purification rites. They were looking for Jesus. They had heard about all the signs. They had heard about Lazarus coming back from the dead. And they wanted to see what was going on with Jesus. And one by one they said, where is he? And the Pharisees and the chief, chief priests and the sages continued to say, if you see him, you tell us. To everyone who came to town, if you know where he is, you let us know. Because they were ready to kill him. Couldn't find him. What do you think? He's not going to come to the feast at all? He, the the one who says he's the son of God, he, the one who says he's the Messiah, is not going to come to the the greatest feast, the Passover feast, the, the greatest religious celebration of the whole Jewish nation of which he is a part. He's not even going to come at all? No, but he's going to come in his own time. He's going to come when he's ready. He's going to come when what Peter said in the second chapter of Acts, there on that day of Pentecost. Jesus, at that point, has already been crucified, has already been buried, has risen from the dead himself. Peter looks out over, and he's ascended back into heaven. Peter looks out over this great throng of people that have gathered for the celebration of Pentecost. And this is what he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, in your presence, as you yourselves know. Now, what he's saying there is exactly what Caiaphas said when they gathered that council together. He's doing many signs. Peter's just confirming what Caiaphas said. He did many signs in your presence performed by God through him in your presence. You yourselves know, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held by death's power." And then he quotes David out of the Psalms. Peter says, listen, the Pharisees and the council and the Jews did not put him to death on their timetable. They did not win a victory over him that they thought they were winning. God determined the time The place, the method, planned it all, prophesied it through the prophets, and it all came to fruition at that Passover. But this is the the pivotal point of the gospel. Everything we've talked about up to this point has kind of been lived in the shadow of the cross. You know it's coming. John is preparing us for it in a multitude of ways. But now at this point, it's no longer a shadow, but it's the specter of the cross. It's no longer just mere shadow. It's no longer just kind of talked about with Jesus among his disciples. Those in authority are about to take action by God's permission and only with God's permission... They're about to take action to take Jesus to the cross. There's a lot he's going to tell us before he gets to that point. But everything from this point on, I want you to understand, can only be understood when you understand Calvary is looming imminently before his eyes. Here's my question to you this morning. Are you going to be like those Jews who saw what Jesus had done and believed? They they, they saw the miracles, they saw the signs, and they believed in Him? Are you going to be like those who saw the power of God? Maybe in worship we would see the power of God. Maybe in the changed lives of people around us we would see the power of God. Maybe you'd see the power of God, how He'd taken someone who was absolutely reprobate, and turned him into a follower of Jesus. That's a miracle, folks. That's a resurrection of sorts. You say, I'm not going to believe. Because if I believe, I have to surrender something. If I believe, I have to give in to something. You know, I'm really convinced, just as it was with Caiaphas, Refused to Believe, That most of the time we don't disbelieve Christ, disbelieve who Christ is, or even disbelieve the scriptures as the Word of God because we've intellectually worked it out. It's usually a moral issue. Caiaphas's moral issue was he didn't want to lose power. Our moral issue is many times we don't want to lose control of our own life, we don't want to quit being our own Lord. We don't want to give up our idols. We, want, we don't want to give up that which pleasures us because we think if we really, if we really believe like those who saw the miracles and really believed in him, if we really believe, then he might require something of our lives that, that we just really don't want to. We just really don't want to give up. I'll never forget my pastor in seminary. Many of you met him, Paul Burleson. One time in a pastoral ministries class that he was teaching about 25 or 30 of us seminary boys. He said, let me tell you something. If you ever have someone in your church who's been there for a while and they've worshipped and they've, you know, everything's been fine. And, they, and at some point they say, you know, I just don't know if the Bible really is the word of God completely. Don't try to intellectually argue with them. Start looking for the sin in their life that they don't want to give up. Start looking for the idols in their lives that they realize that if God's word is true, they've got to surrender. They've got to give up. They've got to let go of. They don't want to submit to the word of God because they want their word to be the word of God to them. So I ask you this morning, have you seen the presence of Christ? Have you seen the power of God in Christ? Have you you understood the gospel as it is that he came to redeem a people for himself and he's calling you to repentance and to faith in him? And you just say, I don't want that. I'm happy with me. I'm happy with me. Then you're like the Pharisees. You're like those who just said, no, we like things the way they are in our lives. And he might make things uncomfortable. Let me tell you something, he will. He will. Because he is Lord. He's master, he's king. He's God of all creation and and everything there is. His demand upon your life and His demand upon my life is non-negotiable. What is it today that you need to believe Christ for? That you need to be like those who were there and saw that raising of Lazarus and said, We believe, and we trust, and we follow. desire to obey. Or what is it that's keeping you like it kept the Pharisees and the others from believing that says, no, we can't let go of this power. We can't let go of this sin. We can't let go of this idol. We can't let go of this pleasure. We can't let go of something. Because the cost will just be too great. Where are you? Individually. I'm not talking to you as a mass today. I'm talking to you individually. Where are you? Let's pray. Father, it is with hearts that need you that we come before you. Lord, we don't bring any righteousness to you. We don't bring any goodness. We don't bring anything whereby we can commend ourselves to you. We just come as sinners. In need of your grace, touch in need of your powerful touch in our life. Father, I pray for men and women who are here this morning who do not know you. Do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will move in their life and quicken them, O Lord. Give them life to believe. Touch their hearts. And draw them to the Savior. Pray for others, Lord, who's still wrapped in some grave clothes. Still struggling with some of those things that don't belong to a live person. They belong to a dead person, and now they're alive. They've trusted Christ, but they still just don't want to give up that grave clothes. Lord, strip them away. Loose them. Take away the idol. Take away the sin. Father, we ask you to do your work in your way right now, if it be your will. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.